Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day in a still rather deserted city of Westminster in these times of COVID-19, as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm your host, Scott Challoner, and I'm joined on today's programme by Simon Elliott. Simon is the CEO of the Community Schools Trust in London. Simon, welcome to the programme and thank you ever so much for joining us. That's a pleasure. It's a real pleasure having you um, on with us as well, Simon. Now, the purpose of this discussion is to really establish your take on leadership. So first and foremost, if we just look at that word leader in isolation for a second, what does that word actually mean to you and how does it resonate? Well, when I started out in my current position, um, one thing that was clear to me was that to, to get the best out of the people that I work with was to try and find out what makes them tick and what they were good at and then getting them working towards you know, a clear direction based on their abilities. So to me, a, a good leader is somebody that is able to provide direction but to work with the strengths that he's got and to create a real sense of, uh, of, of team. So uh, above all else, I think that's absolutely key. I think it comes down to culture, that doesn't it? Uh, the culture that a leader can um, essentially um, impose on a business or an organisation. I think that's incredibly important. And it also is about empowering those around them to be confident enough to sort of take on their own form of leadership and try things for themselves, because it's important to help other people develop in that sense. But also it's important to remember that being a leader isn't just about you, is it? It's very much just as much about those around you as well. And really, it's also about them getting the best out of you as much as it is vice versa you getting the best out of them i would agree with that i mean one of the key jobs of a leader is to create meaning for the organization so it sounds a bit woolly and i'm quite a practical person but i do believe that you have to express a reason for what what it is that you're trying to achieve and then you need people to buy into that so how you go about and express your values within an organization can really help to direct it you know, we, we try and have a, a down-to-earth approach, but one that is always looking to improve. So the idea of resting on our laurels or believing that we've made it all is anathema to us. And that, that does, to a degree, come from the top. You, you are right, though, in that I recognise that there are far more talented people around me and being able to sort of, uh, you know, conduct them and get them working in the same, in the right direction is, is absolutely crucial. But something else is being able to articulate that by telling the right stories at the right time. Because when times get tough, now will be a good example. You know, reminding everybody what we're here for, um, how it's making a difference and giving them something to buy into is absolutely crucial. It's an important point, isn't it? Not being able to sort of just rest on your laurels because that comes down again to adaptability and flexibility and also innovation as well. And that's incredibly important for the longevity of any organisation, be it a business or otherwise. And from a leadership perspective, that's incredibly important. Um, It's been especially important as well, I think it's fair to say, in the context of the here and now, hasn't it? Um, Because... We've had to adapt during the COVID-19 pandemic to leading from a distance, whether it be through remote uh, means such as um, Zoom technology to keep the communication channels open. And that has posed a range of challenges for today's leaders as well in its own right. It has, and it requires a degree of flexibility from people that 
is often requires them to go above and beyond. And I think it helps if you've grown a culture in your organisation whereby people are prepared to, you know, to put that flexibility in. And when the, you know, when the, when the chips are down, that's when you often find out a lot about how people are going to react. And it's important to know when to, you know, put the, the, the pressure on and when to sort of uh, realise that people are under a great deal of strain. And, and that's a, a key thing that comes with managing and leading in any complex organisation. And, and at the, we did a, a, a training course with our, our leaders last year. We, we called it Everything Matters, Everything is Connected, Pay Attention. And we're really seeing that now because... Um, you know, if, if we change one small thing in school, for example, the way that we um, deliver our, our lessons, then you know th- that's that's connected to how the two children can access it. And then, are we paying attention? Are we watching which children are logging on to uh, do their work? So you've got to be constantly vigilant in an organisation. You do absolutely. Yeah, vigilance um, is um, critical uh, from a leadership point of view. Knowing what's going on, of course being transparent yourself is incredibly important but also clarity um, as well uh, within leadership is vital and there's been a huge debate about how clear government guidance um, has been for sure and I can imagine from a school's point of view that's really thrown up a few challenges especially of late the, the clarity is really important also within leadership I mean I think that it, I, I have worked with some people who've got some really sort of domain specific knowledge and, and talents and they're not always people that you'd necessarily see as in a traditional sense leaders but they are able to bring a range of sort of skills and clarity to certain sections of the organisation and because of that they're able to help us plan through this current crisis again you know they're, they're not always people that you that they're not sort of Churchill speech types but behind the scenes, they're working very efficiently to give the children a good deal. So that, I think that's very, very important. Uh, you know, not, not all leaders look the same. Leadership does come with very many different faces. You're right, Simon. That's um, absolutely correct. I mean, it doesn't have to be people who are sticking their heads above the parapet. It can be people who are just going about their business very quietly. And in fact, I think that this time has especially shown that some of the most influential leaders out there can really be those closest to us, be they teachers, mentors, colleagues, friends, family. And I think that recognition for those sorts of people can often be lacking because there's a temptation to associate leadership, isn't there, with the public eye and with politics and with sports and celebrity. Would you find yourself agreeing with that? I would very much agree with that. And and, and I should write that down, actually, for when I'm doing my next staff briefing, because there are teachers that are sitting at home now across my organisation who are having to take the initiative and change and adapt the way that they teach so that they can deliver online lessons uh, in a a way that they're not used to. And that takes a lot of Mm self-discipline, self-motivation, and it's very, very difficult to to, to, uh, prepare somebody for that. But you you are right, across the the education, lots and lots of teachers are doing that at the moment. And that is a form of leadership that isn't being Mm -hmm. recognised perhaps um, all the time. 
And I think as well, even though it has been an incredibly difficult and challenging time and also a very tragic time as well, there will be some positives to take from the experience of having to adapt in that way. Because from a leadership perspective, there's the experience of crisis management. For teachers, as we've rightfully said there, they're really going out of their comfort zones to keep education provision going. And it's going to breed some real resilience and some real spirit, isn't it? Because this period has fundamentally brought us all closer together, even from a distance. It has, and it's also made us examine what we're teaching and what we're doing as, as uh, you know, as professionals. I, I think also the use of um, ICT, homeworking, and flexibility around how we operate. I think that is an area that will come under increasing scrutiny, and I think that, um, that that's something that we can look forward to as perhaps being something that's a good outcome from this. You know, it may be possible that we can get people working from home where they're in, in an environment that they prefer. Uh, we can also sort of augment and add to the teaching that the children get in class much more with online learning than we, than we did in the past. So there, there definitely are opportunities if you're flexible enough to take them. Mm. I think that's um, exactly right. And um, we've talked as well about how the response from the teaching profession and also the front line and various other areas of society has been exemplary and really inspiring during this time. But just backtracking a little bit, Simon, what would you say yeah. have been some of the other big inspirations for yourself as you've gone through your career and maybe some of the big influences? I mean, I, I've always um, looked looked uh, above me, believe it or not, and thought, well, what, what could we do that's just a little bit better than what's out there at the moment? So, you know, uh, there's a black box thinking, uh, in, you know, quite a popular book by Matthew Syed, and the idea that there's always something else that you can do to, to make things slightly better doesn't have to be world changing but if if that's your starting point every year that's how myself and my team sit down and we think what is it that we need to do just that little bit better Uh, given that you know one of the schools in our trust has been you know in the top 50 schools in the UK for the last four years it's sometimes difficult to achieve but genuinely we we, we look around I think we'd like to we like to innovate we like to look at what other successful organizations are doing and I, I personally am really, really interested in the ideas that, that, that generate improvement. And I think that that now is something that, uh, you know, I share that with a lot of leaders in my trust. And thinking about the future now, Simon, just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today, um, for the next sort of 12 to 18 months, what do you envision for yourself and for the uh, the trust? And what do you hope to achieve as we hopefully move through this COVID-19 pandemic, emerge from the other side and then really begin to look to the future? Well, I think so, leadership on the ground is going to be really, really important. So there was a, a story today that there's been 41 updates to the government guidance. Um, others are saying 101 updates to the government guidance. So being able to adapt and react right at this very moment, uh, it's not been particularly fashionable, but I think that is something that successful organisations will need to do. Um, looking into the sort of the, the medium term, how you capitalise on the opportunities that this has thrown up, and I've, I've talked earlier about you know more flexible working patterns possibly, and in, improving ICT that that will be key. And finally, um, I think retaining the the talent in an organisation and including people in this uh, you know in, in what's going on at the moment is absolutely crucial because it, it is disorientating for us all. 
and trying to you know retain uh, a sense of ethos, uh, culture, and, and meaning is really important. I think you're absolutely right, Simon. Uh, there's a need to really uh, maintain uh, that emphasis, as well as also the renewed focus on things such as mental health and well-being as we move through this. Um, humans, of course, are creatures of habit, so hopefully we don't sort of phase back and really lose sight of uh, what we really picked up during this time of self-reflection. And, you know, I think, um, given how informative it's been uh, today having you on the programme with us, Simon, it would be great if in the next 18 months or so, when we start to understand what this new normal will look like, we could even catch up and have you back on the programme just to see at what stage we are at. I would very much welcome that. It's certainly been a challenge for us all in mm. all organisations, but I do hope that the future is going to look a lot brighter than it does now. And as we adapt, it'll be very interesting to reflect on what happened during this time. Learning the lessons from this is going to be absolutely integral, and it's a shame we're just about out of time on the programme. Otherwise, we could talk about it all afternoon, Simon, I'm sure. Um, we could, I'm sure. Mm. Absolutely. Um, I've got to say, it's been a real pleasure, Simon, having you on the uh, the programme, as well as a really informative and insightful experience. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And most importantly, do take care and do stay safe with everything still going on, because we're certainly not out of the woods with this yet. You too. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. That was Simon Elliott speaking, the CEO of the Community Schools Trust in London. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and also the chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now, despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett is one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, having held a number of senior positions in Tony Blair cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords back in August 2015 when he was anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough and I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. That's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much, it's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. 
Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's severe illness. But all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the 
the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and. Um, and the U.S., and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And 
one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. 
on the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Um, These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack, uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly 
there's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from 
the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. 
Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one key, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm-hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up 
in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blanket. Thank you. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.